ahead, though, and grab out your Bibles and something to take some notes with, everybody. I told you I will convince you one day to take notes. I am deaf but not blind. I can see that you're not taking notes, all right? I can, I can see all that. But grab something out to write some things down. We're starting a brand new series called Faith That Still Moves. Uh, I am excited about this. I've been wanting to do this for most of this year. Uh, we're going to be walking chapter by chapter through the book of James, one of the most practical books uh, ever written. It was written by uh, the brother of Jesus. I don't know if you know this, but after Jesus was born... By the Holy Spirit, Mary and Joseph had a bunch of children. And the rest of that family really didn't love Jesus all that much. And so they kept showing up everywhere that Jesus was. And they would show up when he was preaching and doing miracles and kind of just reaching the masses. And they'd say, like, his brothers and sisters would show up and tell everybody, hey, he's nuts. Like, Jesus is crazy. Like, we need to take him home. Like, just don't listen to him. He thinks he's the son of God. So they didn't do Jesus any favors. And he had a lot of probably pain and and rejection he had to walk through because of the way his family would treat him. But they would hang out and be like, okay, he's, he's nuts, he's crazy, don't listen to Jesus. But then James, after Jesus was resurrected, James actually converts to Christianity. Which I think is one of the greatest examples of Jesus' divinity that you could possibly ask for. Because think about it for just a moment. What would it take for you to convince one of your siblings that you were God? Like, what would that, what would that entail that you could convince your family? It'd probably, come on, somebody. It would probably take, like, moving heaven and earth to try to convince them. Now, James, though, converts, and he's a pastor in Jerusalem. He's writing to the rest of the tribe dispersed, the body of Christ, and he gives all kinds of great wisdom on practical faith. He talks about wisdom. So here's our theme verse for the study. James 1, verse 22. He says, don't merely listen to the word. So he's writing to the early church. He's writing to them and he's saying, don't just listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So let's read this all together. All right. This last part. Don't merely deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do what it says. It's fascinating for me that we live in an age of information. I think it's incredible. I am, I am like the tech guy around here. I enjoy that we have access to so many different things and all of these things. And chances are, as a believer, you are probably consuming a lot of Bible content. Like maybe you come here on the weekends and you hear the message and then maybe you've got like your favorite podcast throughout the week or Christian radio or you've got a Christian devotion that you like to listen to or all kinds of different sermons or pastor. Maybe you're one of those nuts like me and you just listen to lots of sermons and you just enjoy like different voices and you're listening and you have all those things. You've got like the eight volume systematic theology at home and you're reading through every single chapter. Like you have all the and I think it's all wonderful. Listen to me. Like I I think it's an amazing thing we have access to that maybe no generation generation has in the history of Christianity. I think it's incredible. My question then is, is why does the church then not look like the bride that Jesus is returning for? If, if we have more access to more knowledge and teaching and Bible learning than anyone in the history of our faith, then why is it we don't look like the bride Jesus is returning for? Why is it we consume all of the spiritual content, but we never share our faith at Walmart or Starbucks? We're never serving the less fortunate. Why is it we have all of the knowledge, but we're not using our giftings and talents to make an impact or even a dent for eternity? Why are we consuming all of these things? And James is like, hey, you're just deceiving yourself. You just, if you're all you're doing is consuming the word and not living it out, it's not changing your life. You're just fooling yourself. You're just wasting all of your time learning all these things. You've got to put this thing into action. It's not about how much you know. It's about what you live. 
And so James is writing to the early church and he's like, listen up. If, if you're just hearing, if you're just listening, if you're just consuming, but you're not doing anything, you're just fooling yourself. You're not pulling the wool over anybody else's eyes. You're not like, like making sure you trick this person. You're just fooling yourself. He says, do what it says. So my goal is to inspire us as a church to take some steps of practical faith as we study to it. So if you want to, with that, open up your Bibles to James chapter 1, verse 1. If you want to look up at the screens, we have it there too. James 1, verse 1, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve stripes scattered among, so they're dispersed, scattered among the nations, greetings. So hello, everybody. He starts it off. And then I want to warn you, because verse 2, he just punches you right in the mouth. He's like, hello, everybody. And then he just like uppercut. It's James, no gloves. Just straight into it. And I love James for it, but it's painful sometimes, right, everybody? And honestly, this second verse ties us right back into the last series we came out of. And we're going to talk about so many different topics in this series. But this first one that James talks about, I think, ties right back in when we talked about storms and on the water. Because James gives us a perspective that I think is pretty unique uh, in our culture today. Watch this verse two. He says, consider it pure joy. So hello, everybody. I'm really excited to write my letter to you. And then like five words in, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Like that's not the message that I want from James writing to Jerusalem. I'm dispersed and I'll tell you why in just a little bit. We're, we're spread out among the nations. Christianity is now spread and James is writing to encourage. And he says, consider it pure joy when you encounter trials of many kinds. Like, that's not the way I write a letter to encourage. Like last week, if somebody had texted me and was like, Pastor, I am so excited that you can't breathe. I just, I'm so pumped that you are going through this. I like, Pastor, consider it such, it's so amazing. I can't believe you get the opportunity for your body to shut down. I just, I can't just believe it. I'm so, consider it joy and you have the opportunity to feel like this. It's just amazing. That's not what would encourage me. But James is writing, consider it pure joy, not consider it opportunity. We'll get to that. Not because I think some of us as mature Christians, we're like, yeah, I can see opportunity in trials. I can see like how I can manipulate the situation. I can see how this could be like a slingshot for what I need to come next. I can no James, like consider it pure joy. What would our life look like if we considered it pure joy? Like, thank you, God. Another problem. Like, I cannot thank you, God, for this thing that's coming again. Thank you, Lord, for another thing that would happen. Something difficult, something painful. I told you, this ties right back in because all of us have trials of various kinds. In fact, we talked about this all last month. How many of you, show of hands, how many would say, right now, I am walking through something? Like, right now in my life, I am walking through some kind of pressure or a trial, something that's happening in my life. Yeah, about 80, 85% of us. How many would take a step further and say, right now, I am sitting next to my trial? I am right there, like, I am... <laughs> Some of you are like, right here, pastor, right on my, that's passive aggressive. All right. We'll deal with that. That's, that's another series. We'll, we'll deal with that. James writes, he's like, consider it pure joy, not just opportunity, not just like manipulate the situation, not just like, well, this will pass. This has to, he says, consider it joy that you are going through. Why would we consider it joy? Well, verse three, we continue through the chapter, pure joy, my brothers and sisters, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Testing of your faith. And we're going to go through all of the things that it does for us. First one, jot it down if you're taking notes. First thing we realize is trials are tests. First thing we have to see, he says, consider it joy if you're in a trial because it's testing our faith to produce something. 
Consider it joy. So you and I will face painful moments in life, and these painful moments serve as tests for us. Now, tests are important because tests are very revealing. I don't know if you understand this. You remember, maybe if you can like cast your mind back to grade school. When you would take a test, when you would take a test, they would reveal some things about who you are and what you are learning, right? When you give a test, when they take a test, because teachers have to know how far along are you and are you grasping the information? Have you understood what we've taught so far so that you can understand what's coming next? And so when you take a test, what concepts have you managed? Where are you in your learning? Now, God, in his infinite wisdom, he knows exactly where we are. But he also wants us to know where we are challenged and where we need to grow. And the areas of our life that need to be tested so that growth can come in our journey of faith. And it is not an easy fact about the Christian life. The fact that where we are sometimes isn't where we're supposed to be. The fact that how far we've come isn't as far as he's supposed to take us. And so sometimes we have to learn through testing where exactly we are, where we need to grow and where our character needs to be developed. Watch in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 3, it says the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold. Those are things that test those metals. Crucible for silver. The crucible is hot. The furnace is hot. It burns away the impurities. It purifies the metal. So it says, so also the Lord tests the heart in the same way. You think about that. We like these verses because they sound so poetic and we can put them like on the fridge, on a bumper sticker, on a magnet. But you think about the crucible, the heat that purifies the metal, the furnace that the gold has to go through. And it says in the same way, the Lord tests the heart. I told you guys back in August, uh, I'm teaching a couple of literature classes back at the academy. uh, And it's amazing. It's incredible. The students are absolutely fantastic. It's amazing to get to spend time with them. Honestly, I like them more than you people. Come on, somebody. Like, I just, if we're being honest today, it's a lot easier to get them to listen after the break. I'm just saying, all right? Just throwing that out there. It's just, that's just free for you today. But one thing you study in literature is this idea of context clues. This idea that you can understand a certain thing in a sentence, a word, a paragraph, a phrase by understanding the things around it. Context clues that you understand. Even if you don't understand the word, you can look at the things around it and try to understand what it's trying to say. This idea of context clues. And so context here tells us if the crucible heats up silver in order to purify it and the furnace heats up gold in order to purify it then the Lord will heat up your life in order to purify it. He will turn up the heat on your life in order to burn off some impurities that have caused us to keep us from growing. That he will turn up the heat to burn off. The Lord will look at your life and say, there's some insecurities over here we're going to have to deal with. There's some things you're walking through that we're going to have to settle in your heart. There's some wounds that you're going to have to overcome. Some issues you're going to have to deal with so you can get to where God has called you to be. To live out the life that God has. I told you we're honing in on this thought from the last series. And that is God is far more concerned with your character than he is with your comfort. The God that loves us. The God whose hand is on our life is far more concerned with your character. With developing us into who he's called us to be. Than he ever is with us being cushy and comfortable where we are. And so God doesn't look at your life and say I want you to always feel safe and secure and comfortable and cushy. In fact it's the exact opposite in Christianity. In fact, God will turn up the heat on your life. Oftentimes, you will walk through things in our lives, having to know to trust God, having tests so that our faith can grow. Verse 3 of our text, not only is it testing our faith, I want you to see from verse 3, it's producing something in us. 
This thing that we're walking through, this pressure, these things that happen, the trials that we go through, they're producing perseverance inside of our lives. Second thing you have to know is tests then actually have a purpose. It's not just fun and games. It's not just so we could fail at something. There's an actual purpose that's going on in the trials that we walk through. It's producing something. The reason why we count it joy is because they're serving a purpose in our lives. Producing. Verse 4. Let perseverance finish its work. So you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. It's producing. What is it producing? Maturity and completion. Now, God is a good father. And so good parents desire their children to grow up. Come on, somebody. Like we desire them to stop pooping on themselves. We desire them to start cutting their own food. We desire them to grow up and get a job. Come on, somebody. Like you should not be 45 and living in your parents' pool house. I'm just throwing that out, all right? It's just, I'm not trying to step on toes. It's just helping you out, all right? I'm just passing you a little bit. But God desires us to grow mature and complete. That we would be steadfast, that word means. That we would be stable. And he talks about this in just a little while. But first he's saying this perseverance, maturity and completion. And most of us pray prayers like that. God, would you use me? God, would you purify me? God, would you cleanse me? God, would you grow me? God, would you put your dreams and mentalities? God, would you give me my destiny? God, would you put me in the place where I can be used to make a difference for the kingdom? We pray prayers like that, but we seldom, if ever, like the answer to that prayer. God, I I really want to be used by you. Because if we really want that to happen, the reality is we're going to have to walk through some pain. We're going to have to walk through some trials in our life to allow the impurities to be burned off to step into the destiny God has for us. Put that on a bumper sticker, everybody. Put that like we need to have these things happen in our lives so we can be mature and complete. But we want the completion and the maturity without any of the walk through before. We want that to happen now. We cannot reach our destiny without having walked through pressure-filled, pain-filled moments. You can't have your destiny for free. It's going to cost all of us something. It's going to cost us something. Because if you've never been tested, you can't be trusted. If you've never had this impurity burned off, you can't walk into the next thing. God has things that he wants in our lives. I will die on that hill that he has a destiny for every single Christian and a plan and a purpose for your life. But he has called you to something and he may need to burn off some impurity so you can reach the destiny he has. The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold. Now, I'm a big sports fan. I make no bones about that, all right? I probably overdo it a little bit too much, but it's just who I am, so I just love to do it. I love basketball and football especially. That's just where I am. And if you've ever noticed, there's this, this tendency, if you've ever seen a team, especially in college football, now not our team, because that's not happening today, but you've ever seen a team that is in like a smaller conference, and they're going undefeated. It's about halfway through the season. And they're like 7-0, 8-0, but they're in like a smaller conference, so they're just blowing everybody out. But they're undefeated at that point, and they come out with the rankings. You ever see the analysts are like completely bewildered about where to put this team? Because they don't know how good they are. They don't know if they're actually good, and they don't know if they're just playing cupcakes. They don't know if they're blowing them out because they're... They don't know, like, how good are you? And so they're just winning games, but nobody knows if they've actually been tested. Because until you get down 10, 15 on the road to a really good team, nobody knows how good you are. Because they're not in a power conference. They're not doing the things we think a good team should do. And so you can't really say, like, where do we rank them? Same thing in our lives, in our spiritual lives, in our personal lives. If our life is always cushy and comfortable, there's never a test that will prove. Will you make the right decisions when your morals are on the line? We make the right decisions when there's money on the line. Make the right business decisions when it means to make or break what you have been trying to build. Will you undercut or cut corners? Will you backstab? What will you do when things are actually under pressure? If you've never been tested, you can't be trusted. 
And God will use these moments in our lives, these trials that are tests, that are judging and moving and making our faith what it is to show us where we are. What do you do when life punches you in the face? Because I promise you it will. There will come a test or a trial. If you're not in one, bless your little heart. You're going into one pretty soon. All right, everybody. There will be trials and tests physically, spiritually, relationally, financially. There will be things that come to test our faith and burn away the impurities in our lives. Come a time where there are setbacks and what you do when it's difficult to navigate. It's why Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 5. Watch this. It says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. These Bible people are nuts, right? Like they just, I don't know if you people are honest with yourself when you're actually reading the Bible. But he's like, we also glory in our sufferings. And we take that and we just take it as like, well, Paul's just saying like, we just kind of like survive in our sufferings. We just kind of make do until things get better. We just put a smile on our face, but really we're not all. No, he says we glory in our sufferings because we know, we know that suffering produces perseverance. Watch, same idea from James. Perseverance produces character and character gives us hope. We say we hate the pain, but something has to be dying so that something can grow. All of us would say we hate the pain and the trials and things, but it's because it's producing something in us that leads us to our hope. It's the old workout slogan, say it with me, no pain, no gain. You talk to somebody who loves to work out. If you have a friend who's just like insane, they just like to work out, or a family member. If you've ever met one of these crazy people who just like lives for it, loves to work, what is it? They love, they're always in pain. Like you talk to them in the morning like it was leg day. I got up at like 2 a.m. this morning. I did my legs for like four hours and now I'm here and I can't walk. I love it. I'm just so amazed. It's just amazing. Or they're like, yeah, my arms just, it was arm day and leg day and back day. And so I'm just going to like sit here in a fetal position all day long. It's amazing. I love it. You talk to somebody like, what do they say? I love the pain. Why? Because something is dying so that something can grow. Something is being attacked so that something can grow. Something is under pressure so that something can grow. And we would say in our lives, I hate the times of trial and I hate the times of pain and I hate the times I had to walk through that and I hate the times of pressure that I had to endure and I had to make decisions, I had to do those things. But Paul is saying we glory in those moments because it's producing something in us. It's perseverance that's leading us to our character and leading us to our hope because something is dying so that something can grow. We should be uncomfortable with being comfortable. Like if everything in life is working out completely, if everybody likes us and there is no pain and no hardship, we need to get to a place that we don't like life that doesn't have at least a little bit of trial and pain. Because if there's pain, it means we have an opportunity to grow, have an opportunity to become what God has called us to be. But then on the other side of this, and I want to say this as carefully as possible, because some of you are walking through some of the darkest, most painful moments of your life. Never assume you know what somebody else is walking through. Never assume. And you're walking through that moment of darkness and pain and you're ready to give up. In fact, you've decided in your life, God has forsaken me. He might like everybody else and he might answer all of their prayers, but he's left me completely alone. There's no purpose in all of this. I can't understand why it's happening. I want you to know that it is there for a reason. And I say this with all heartfelt compassion that I can possibly muster. If I could talk with you one-on-one, All the compassion I can, but I would just say to you, one, it is there possibly for a reason. But more than that, that maybe your calling is bigger than you could possibly imagine. That God has something for you and his hand has never left your life. That he still loves you, that his eye is still on you, that he can still see you in the middle of the storm, that he has never left you or forsaken you. 
that God does still love you. But in the middle of the storm, I understand that the pain sometimes is greater than you think you have the ability to endure. But listen to me, there is purpose in your pain. That I am convinced that God is not the author of chaos or pain in our lives, but he can't turn it for his good. But what happens in the midst of that is the devil wants to get in your ear and tell you that you're finished. That this is all there will ever be. This is all there has ever been. And that God has forsaken you. I promise you it is a lie from the pit of hell. I promise you that God's hand is still on your life. That there is purpose in your pain. That sometimes God will allow it so that we can grow. But the devil will take a shot at you. And honestly, in those moments, it's probably one of the most crucial moments of your life. When you feel like you're in pain that you can't endure. When you feel like... It's too much. And the devil will try to whisper in your ear that it's over, that it's finished. That you missed the boat. That you don't have a purpose. What I want you to see is without that battle, without that moment of pressure or pain, without coming through that, you'll never see the victory that James is talking about. James is talking about a very specific thing that only pain-filled, trial-filled moments can produce in our lives. You don't get this any other way. You think about this in the Bible, even from the heroes of the faith. Without a flood, we would never would have had a Noah. Think about without a Goliath, you never would have had David rise on the scene to his destiny. Without years of oppression in Egypt, you wouldn't have had Moses come as the deliverer. You have these moments that produce this in their lives that we would have looked at and said, no, that's a setback. But God is using it as a setup to bring the journey of faith these heroes had to walk And in our own lives, in our own darkest moments, the devil might be whispering in your ear or in your heart that it's senseless. That there's no reason for this pain, but God can use it to produce something. And he's always had his hand on your life. God can use it for his good. Beginning of our chapter, it says, James writing to the tribes in dispersion. You know why the church was in dispersion? You know why they were separated and scattered and James is now writing to them? It's this idea. James is writing to the tribes in dispersion. The reason that they're spread out across this whole world. Because they were very comfortable in Jerusalem. Having a good old time. Meeting at the portico. Singing songs of praise. Having more added to their numbers. It was a good time in the early church. Seeing people delivered. Seeing people set free and healed. Everything was going great. Seeing people added and following the name of Jesus. And all of a sudden this guy named Stephen is executed for the faith. This incredible pillar in the early church. In a senseless moment, he's stoned for his faith. This eloquent young preacher, this guy who's going to be like the, the superstar of the early church, is murdered in a moment, executed for his faith. And it says persecution explodes against the church. And now they're in disarray. And now it's a dark moment. And now everything is coming crashing down. And it says they went out from Jerusalem executed, persecuted, chased out, but it went, they went out planting churches as they went. They were fine in the city. They were having a good old time reaching the name of the Lord, but then suddenly they went out in dispersion and suddenly they planted churches all along the way. And you know who was chasing them down as they planted those churches, trying to persecute the early church was a guy named Saul who met Jesus on the road to Damascus, chasing down these churches in dispersion, met Jesus and changed the course of the New Testament. I promise you, I don't know what dark moment you are walking through, but I promise you God can turn it for his good. He has done it again and again and again. What we would say, this is a breakdown. Yeah, we can give glory. What what we would say is the darkest moment. We would say, don't execute this superstar. Don't execute this voice for the faith. Don't, Don't disperse the tribes. They're doing the work of God. We would say the darkest moment. 
and God orchestrates it, turns it around for the good of the kingdom. I promise you, whatever you are walking through, whatever pain you are facing, I promise our God knows how to turn it around for the good. I love the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. You read the story of Joseph, betrayed by his family, walks through those wounds, left for dead, sold into slavery, betrayed in slavery. You cannot get worse than betrayed while you are a slave. Thrown into prison, forgotten in prison, saves this guy's life and the guy forgets him. Leaves him to rot until one day God remembers. One day God is with him. One day God brings him out in his timing. And Joseph is now the second in command in Egypt. And he's standing there with his brothers in front of him. The ones who started the domino effect of where he was. And he's looking at his brothers and they're trembling in fear thinking he's going to kill him. And he looks at him and he's like, listen, you tried to take me out. I know you hated me. I know you tried to kill me. I know what you did. I know what you meant and I know what it was supposed to do. But listen to me. I know that you meant it for evil, but God has turned it for the good. And he looks at them and he says, I know everything that you thought you were doing. I know what you thought you were doing intended for evil, but God is... And Joseph's like, I recognize I would not be here today about to save thousands and thousands of lives if it hadn't been for the pain that I walked through. I promise you, church, there will come a moment in your life where you will look back on the hell that you are currently walking through and you will say, I would not be the person I am today if I hadn't walked through that. I would not be where I am in my faith if I wasn't walking through. If I could tell you some of the most beautiful things in your life are born out of some of the most painful, darkest moments. Some of the most beautiful pieces of ministry that you will ever have are born out of the darkest moments of pain. I want you to know there is purpose in the pain you experience. God's not finished with you yet. In fact, he has a plan for your life. In fact, some of the things that you will do are based out of what you are learning in the crucible and in the fire. God has a future for you. So we all walk through trials. We all walk through pain. They're a test of our character to help us to grow because God wants to do something through us. We go back to our text, verse 5. It's almost like he changes the subject. It's almost like he like swings wildly. And James does this a couple of times in the chapters. I'll kind of explain them as we go. But the first one, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Now, it seems like he's talking about problems and trials and pains and storms and all those things. And then it seems like, okay, now we're going to talk about wisdom. Like, it's good you went through those things, and now let's talk. But it almost seems like James has an entirely different subject. Until you remember, the trials, I told you, are not there so we would just fail. Like, these trials and tests are not here just so we have an opportunity to fail, so we can just repeat the third grade over and over. No, he says, like, this trial and this test that you're walking through, James gives us, first of all, he says, count it an opportunity because it's making perseverance and it's causing you to grow. But then second of all, James gives us the nuts and bolts of a life of practical faith. He says, and if you don't have wisdom, you want to pass this trial. You want to pass the test. I cannot think of a better way to pass a test than the wisdom that comes from God. Now, some of you remember in your grade school, right? You needed the wisdom that came from God because you don't remember half the questions that were on that test. And so you just sat there praying and believing. Now, I don't know if God honors those prayers or not. I think the jury is still out, everybody. But in our lives, I would just encourage you, I can't think of a better place to go for wisdom than God. Because most of you, not all of you, all right, but some of you, back when you were in grade school, some of you, when you took a test and you didn't know the answer, what did you do, right? Some of you would just kind of guess. But most of you, not anybody here, but most people in life, you probably would peek. You probably tried. Not any of you people. You're all super spiritual people, right? 
But when you didn't know the answer to the test, and when you would peek, if you would peek, young people don't peek, never, ever, ever peek, all right? But when you would, you're not cheating off the kid that gets F's. Come on, somebody. You're going to cheat off the smart kid. You're looking at, if you need the answer, and so I would just ask you this question today. Who are you cheating off of? When you don't know the answer, when you need wisdom in life, who is it that you're going to for the answer? Because most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we're looking at all these people around us and we're like, oh, that looks really good. That looks really good. But their lives are a mess and their kids aren't growing up in the, the sanctity of the word of the Lord. But we're like, oh, but they know what's going on. They understand. There is nowhere to go but the wisdom of God. You want to have the answers to the test. He says, James says, you want to pass the test. You want to go through the trial. You lack wisdom. Here's where you get it. It comes from God. James like, I know you're in a trial. I know that this is to test your faith. I know that this thing is coming, but behind this pain that God is using to develop the character in your life. But in the midst of that, it should, number three, jot it down if you're taking notes, it should drive us to God. I talked to you all last month, storms and trials have one of two outcomes. Either it drives you from God or it drives you to him. James says, you don't have wisdom to pass the test. You got to cry out and pray to him. Now, chances are you are praying already in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the storm. You're already crying out to God, but chances are I would be willing to bet that we're praying the wrong prayer because I pray the wrong prayer so often that when we're in the middle of the trial, we're in the midst of it. We pray, God, would you rescue me from this? God, would you take it all out of my God? Would you remove this painful moment? God, would you remove this scenario? God, would you remove that person? Come on, somebody. God, would you just take them and move them out of my life? And we pray these prayers of God, would you rescue? God, would you rescue? God, would you take me out of the problem? But isn't it amazing how often we see this pattern occur again and again? Some of you know today you're in a pattern of storm where it seems to be happening every few years or every few months or even every few days. It just seems to reoccur again and again. You feel like God is forsaken and time and again you cry out, would you rescue me from this? Maybe you're praying the wrong prayer. Maybe instead of asking God to rescue you from it, you ask him to teach you in it. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he's not like, if any of you lacks an escape route, if any of you just doesn't have, you know, like the the ripcord to pull, if any of you just doesn't, if you're in the middle of a trial, you should pray and ask God not to be rescued, ask him for wisdom in the midst. Ask him for wisdom, God give me understanding, because clearly there is a lesson that I am not getting. Like if it is reoccurring in my life, sometimes I have to be honest with myself and say, okay, God, maybe I'm not learning what I need to learn in the season that I'm in because I keep repeating the fourth grade spiritually. I don't know what it is, God, but you just keep putting me back in the crucible. So maybe instead of rescue, maybe what I need is wisdom. Maybe what I need is for you to teach me. God, give me understanding. He says, if you lack wisdom, ask God for it. And look how he gives it generously without finding fault. I love this verse. Honestly, this verse speaks to me maybe more than anything else in James because it's amazing. First of all, the Father gives it generously. And that word gives in the New Testament, that's the word continuous giving. Not like a one-time thing. Some of you are like, if I go to God for wisdom, I need like a wisdom download. It better be a doozy because that's my one shot in life to get any wisdom to go through. No, it says it's continuous gift. This is the idea that God will continue to give it as often as we go. It's continual gift. And then he gives it generously. That word in the Greek, generously, it means generously, everybody. It's very deep, all right? It's very, it's this, this bountiful supply, this like never ending that you could go for wisdom, someone else could go for it. All of the people who've ever existed in the history of the world could go for wisdom and it wouldn't put a dent in the wisdom that God gives generously. It's kind of like the golden corral, if we're being honest. Come on, somebody. 
like a never-ending, bountiful supply. They just keep filling the buckets. Now, whether it's healthy or not in that sense, the analogy breaks down. But they keep filling those buckets with food. It's like this never-ending, bountiful supply of wisdom. That God would never run out. He gives it generously. You know, growing up, I hated making decisions. I don't know about you. Some of you people enjoy it. I've met people who enjoy it. I hate making decisions. And so God has given me a position where I get to make hundreds of decisions every day. It's amazing. It's just a blessing from the Lord. But growing up, I hated making big decisions. I liked like, to get all of the options thrown in. If there was a way for D, all of the above, I took it. If there was a way like to make everybody happy, that's the one I wanted to do. And so I hated making them. But then I grew up and now I have to make a bunch. And I still hate to make them. And so I'll come to like the office and staff has some questions. And so I have to answer those and make decisions or back at the school or the Spanish church, just making decisions or someone will call or counseling or whatever it is to try to help answer questions. And then I get home and listen, I have three small children and questions. So many thousands of questions, so many questions. And I don't mind questions, really. I don't. I mind questions that I have answered thousands of times. That's what I mind. All right, everybody? Like, when we're in the car and, like, they're just... I have one child that's just drilling me with question, question, question. And it's just like, like, okay. And parents, you understand this, right? I don't know if this sounds harsh or whatever. But parents, sometimes you're just like, look, mommy and daddy love you. We love you so much. And we love your questions. And we love your mind that it's growing. And we love all those things. But the question counter, we are really closed. And the, we're just done. Like, like we're really tired and we're going to bed. No more questions. God never does that. God's never like you again with your questions. I got people asking questions. I got thousands of God. No more questions. Praise God. God never does that. Praise God. God's not. It says he gives generously. He gives to all continuously, generously. And then it gets to my favorite part. The Bible says he gives without finding fault. God never gets upset about the fact that we have to ask. And I think this has been skewed and mispreached so many times. Till people have been, God doesn't get upset about the fact that we have to ask him for wisdom. God doesn't get upset the way God's never like when you pray. God's not like, come on you again. How stupid are you? you I, I gave you wisdom five seconds. You asked me questions five seconds ago. You need more wisdom. No more wisdom. God doesn't get upset about the fact we have to ask. It says he gives generously without finding fault. If you've ever had to ask somebody the same thing again and again, like the same question, a boss or a friend or a neighbor, if you've ever, it is a humbling place to be in. Because you can tell they can see you coming and they know and you know. Come on, somebody. Like they know exactly what you're about to come and ask. God never finds fault. It doesn't say God gives it begrudgingly. It says he gives it willingly, generously, with all finding fault. He gives it. He loves to give the wisdom that we need. When we're in the midst of the trials, when we're going through a storm, when we have these moments and we don't understand what's the season that I am. God, what are you trying to teach me? God, what am I supposed to know? When you pray that prayer, when you pray for wisdom, it says God gives it without finding fault. And then verse 6, you pray that prayer, you better be ready. Because in verse 6, it says, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. So when you ask for this, when you ask for the wisdom, and you get it, when God gives it, because he's generous in giving the wisdom we need to be in the trial and in the test. You better believe what God tells you to do. I would underline that in your Bible, that little section right there. Believe and not doubt. Because that word believe is the Greek word. It's the New Testament word used for faith. It's this word of action that's produced because of the trust that you have. 
So if you're going to believe what God says, you're going to ask for wisdom, then you'd better be ready to put that wisdom into action. James is saying, if you're going through the trial and you're asking for wisdom, when you pray that prayer, James is teaching us the nuts and bolts. Let's recap for just a second. Like I'm walking through a trial. My life isn't going the way I thought it should. And so now I'm in the midst of it. It's a test to see where I am and I want to grow. I want to be what God has called me to be. And so I'm going to cry out for wisdom in order to do what God has called me to do. And God is going to respond because that's his character. He's going to give the wisdom generously. And then James says, you better be ready to believe and not doubt. But he's actually crying out for you to do because then that word doubt means to actually oppose. So you'd better believe what God is giving you, the wisdom. You better put it into action and you better not oppose what he's saying. Saying you don't get to the place where you pray for wisdom and then God gives it. And then you're like, "Ah, I don't like that. What else you got, God? Like, that's that's nice. That's good wisdom. That sounds like what the word of God says to do, but I don't like it. So I just want something. He said, better trust him and live it out. Jot it down if you're taking notes because fourth thing, test, grow our faith. When you're in the middle of a trial... When you're in the middle of a test, not only does it drive you to God to ask for wisdom, but then when he gives it, it's a chance to put our faith into action. Back to the text, he says, you need to believe and not doubt because you get to the place. Watch this, the rest of the verse. The one who doubts, you get to the place that you're opposing God's word. You're opposing the wisdom that he gives. You're like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Blown and tossed. And watch what it says in verse 7. That person shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. This is a scary, like you've seen the progression now. Seven verses, James has gotten us from hello everybody to you shouldn't expect to receive anything if you're going to oppose what God has given you to do. Anything. It's amazing to me. I wonder how many of our unanswered prayers are due to the fact that we have ignored previously answered prayers. I just, I'm just curious. It's my own holy imagination, but there's an instruction God has given us that we don't feel like following and it has jammed up all of the rest of the answers that we're looking for. He says, don't expect to hear anything from the Lord. Because if you go into a time of testing and trial and you run to the Lord for wisdom and he gives it to you, it says you better believe and not doubt. You shouldn't expect to receive anything because such a person, watch this verse 7, such a person is double-minded and unstable in everything that they do. Such a person double-minded and unstable. Too many times as Christians, we become spiritually schizophrenic. We get unstable in our lives because we don't want to follow the instruction that God has given us. And so then in every other aspect of our lives, we're running around asking every other person, what do you think? I now, listen, there is wisdom in counsel. I'm not debating that at all. I think there's wisdom in the voice of many. I think there's wisdom in the voice of those who have followed God faithfully and can point you to the truth in God's word. But listen to me when you hear the truth of God's word. And God has given you that wisdom. And I'm not minimizing counsel, but when we know in our hearts what God's word has told us to do. But then we oppose it because it's not comfortable to the life that we want to live. And we're running around asking every other person, what do you think I should do? And what do you do? And how do I live? And what do you think? Because we're looking for somebody to tell us something that makes us more comfortable. Because the thing that God's word tells us is just a bridge too far. And we just want somebody to tell us something different so we can get out of the trial that we're in instead of following the wisdom that God gives generously in the midst of the test. But we want everybody else's voices because we're more comfortable with that. You think about this. Sometimes we think, well, it's just too much to live that way. You think about Noah talking with God, right? Just like chatting it up on the afternoon. And he's like, well, yeah, I don't want to die in the flood. And God's like, okay, we'll stop farming and build a boat for 120 years. That's, that's insane. Like, that's just like, you think about these moments. David is 
crying out like, Lord, answer the blasphemy of this Philistine. And God's like, okay, shepherd boy, you get five stones and you go kill him yourself. You go to, like, that is, that says that when God speaks to you in your life, when he gives you the wisdom of whatever it is he's called you to do, but we don't like it. We don't like the way it might make us look. We don't like the way it makes us feel. And so we're going to go find 800 other people who will tell us to do something different because it's more comfortable. When God comes to us in our lives, most of us want the life God's called us to live. I don't dispute that. But then when God's like, okay, but I want you to pass on that opportunity. I want you to give up that lifestyle. I want you to stop going there. I want you to stop listening to that. I want you to stop hanging out with them. I want you to make this decision. I want you to serve others like this. I want you to give like that. And we're like, no, thank you. It just doesn't fit in what I want my lifestyle to be. We can't figure out why we can't hear God in the midst of those seasons or why we're unstable in everything that we're doing when we're actually opposed to what the word of God has told us to do. James tells us because God has a purpose and a plan for our lives and all of the painful moments are setting up a scenario where you have to run to him for wisdom. And when he gives us, it's an opportunity to put it into practice in our lives, a faith that still moves. Verse 12, James kind of wraps up the thought with blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, if you'll persevere to the end, you'll trust God with what he's told you to do. That person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those that love him. If you'll stand the test, the test would actually provide the reward. It's what the Christian life is. So often we pray, Lord, would you rescue me? Lord, would you evacuate me from this? God, would you take me out of it? God, would you take it out of my life? God, would you? But it's actually the journey of faith that we're called to live. And James is saying that's at the end of this trial, at the end of these testings, the one who perseveres, the one who has this produced in their life, that's where the reward comes. That it would be the life that God has promised to us. That the trials, and you can jot it down if you're taking notes, the trials would actually point us towards eternity. You say, well, I would just, I want to live this Christian life, but I don't want all of those. That, that's what the Christian life is. That in the midst of the trials and the pressures and the pains of this life, it would actually point us towards the eternal life that's been promised. That God has chosen us. God says, let's walk through a little bit of this. We pray these prayers of, God, would you use me? God, would I have my destiny? God, would you make me all that you've called me to be? And God's like, okay, we're going to walk through some pressure. We're going to walk through some pain. We're going to walk through some trials. Producing something. Not because he's forsaken us. Not because he's tried to abandon us. Not because he hates us. Because he loves us. Because he's producing something in us, because we need to be mature and complete, because he has a calling on our life that he has called us that is probably greater than you could possibly imagine, because his love for us is greater than we could possibly imagine, because his hope and his dreams for us as children of God, that he has something for us. That these trials and these tests would point us towards eternity. There's a freedom that comes when you realize the purpose in the midst of it. There's a freedom. That when the devil tries to attack to take you out, when the devil tries to whisper in your ear to take you down, I promise you, I promise you that if you hold on, that God will turn it for the good. Every head bowed and every eye closed today. God, we thank you that you do have a plan for our lives. So we rest secure in that fact. And so God, even when we don't understand, even when we walk through moments that seem dark and painful, even when we walk through the crucible or through the furnace, we understand that you are doing something in us. That you can redeem every moment. That you can redeem any circumstance.
that you can turn any shattered dream or shattered pain or anything into the good of the kingdom. So we pray, God, that you'd help us to cry out to you in every season of life. We thank you are a God who gives wisdom generously. Because, God, we need it. Every head bowed today, every eye closed. Some of you, you've been in the middle of pain or trial. And you let the storm, instead of driving you to God, you let it drive you away from him. And look, I don't know what your pain is, and I don't know what caused you to get to where you are, but maybe you woke up today and you realize you are as far from God as you have ever been. Maybe you're still in the middle of pain. And I don't know what you've been told in your life. I don't know what anybody has ever preached at you. But listen to me. God still loves you more than you could possibly imagine. He's not mad at you that you ran. He's waiting to rescue you from where you are. He loves you. I don't care if anybody else ever loved you. I don't care if anybody else ever told you. I don't care if anybody else ever did. I promise you, God loves you. And he still wants you. It is a miracle of God's word that he wants us. But I promise you that he does. So right now you have a decision to make. Wherever you find yourself, whatever situation that you're in, you have a decision. You can keep going the way that you're going. That's your decision to make. It's your choice. But if you make a decision today, you say, I want to turn. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of walking through and I'm walking through. I'm tired of having this senseless seasons of my life. I'm tired of all of this. I want to turn back to God. If you want that today, you have an opportunity. The Bible says he is close to the brokenhearted. God is not far. So right now, if you want that, our church has dedicated ourselves. This most important thing we do is tell others how much God loves them. That Jesus died in your place to save you. The Bible says he came to earth. God himself. That he lived a perfect life. That he died on the cross, not for his sins. He had no sins but to rescue us. It's the simplicity of the gospel. The gospel is not hard to understand. In our place, Jesus put himself. For our sins, Jesus gave himself. For the things that you did that would grieve the heart of God, for the sins that you committed that would cast you so far from any hope of eternity, it says Jesus stepped into our place, gave his life, shed his blood. That we could be saved. He died on a cross. But the Bible says he didn't stay dead. It says he rose again three days later. So anyone, anyone, you and me included, anyone could call on the name of the Lord. Listen to me. You haven't missed your chance. You haven't walked so far and run so fast. You haven't been so disconnected. Right now you have an opportunity to be saved. To have your eternity secure. It says anyone could call on the name of Jesus. 
not asking you to join a church. I'm not asking you to give a bunch of money. I'm not going to take you to a side room afterwards. Right now, you have an opportunity to call on the name of Jesus and be saved. Right now. And so our church, we're going to pray this with you. Nobody prays alone. Church, pray this prayer. Anyone who wants to, right now, you can say these words. You can repent. You have to mean them. I can give you the words. You have to mean them in your heart. Say, Jesus, forgive me of all of my sin, all my mistakes. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose again. And I make you Lord of my life. In Jesus' name. Now, Father, I thank you for every person here. God, I thank you that in the midst of trials, in the midst of tests, God, that you have never left us or forsaken us. God, that you walk with us in the middle of the storm. That your hand is on us because you have a purpose for our lives. That you have called us to make an impact for the kingdom of God. And you have set our eyes on eternity. That you have called us to. That we wouldn't put our eyes to the left or to the right. We would fix them on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We would see these trials as an opportunity to grow and to persevere. That it would build our character and our character would be the hope that we set our lives on. That you are the anchor of our souls in the midst of the storm. That you are the one that carries us through. The one that shows us the kingdom that you have brought. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be followers of Christ. That we set our hope in you. And we set our hope in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all of God's church said amen and amen. Come on, church. Can we put our hands together for what God has done today?